Welcome to the Voices Driving Change podcast by the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. We're releasing this episode of the podcast as part of our September 2020 online event, State of the Environment, Voices Driving Change. From September 15th to 24th, you can hear from the Voices Driving Change for climate justice and clean water across Minnesota in 10 different ways, including live online events, webinars, and podcasts like this one. Each of them highlights ways in which people are driving change here in Minnesota by speaking up for the communities and places that they care about. Learn more. Go to VoicesDrivingChange.org. That's VoicesDrivingChange.org to read more about the stories we feature in the podcast and register for all of the online events. And be sure to join us at 7 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th for our grand finale, a live online event called Legally Green in Your Living Room. Again, you can learn more and register for all of the events and learn about all the podcasts in September at VoicesDrivingChange.org. Thanks to all of our supporters and sponsors who make our work and this podcast possible. Hello, I'm Aaron Clems from the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy, and you are listening to episode number three of Voices Driving Change, the podcast. In September, we're traveling across North America to hear from people whose voices are driving change for climate justice and clean water. Today's episode is titled All About Polymet, and I'll have some words about that title in a moment. I reached J.T. Haynes, MCEA's Northern Minnesota Advocate in Duluth, where he leads our work that affects Northern Minnesota. J.T.'s background is deep and varied, and he brings a global and local perspective to our work on Polymet Sulfide Mine Proposal that I believe you'll find interesting and insightful. But first... Let's hear from the voices driving change on sulfide mining and clean water, including folks from British Columbia in the shadow of the 2014 Mount Polly mine disaster. This audio was recorded in 2018 in Duluth. It may be the worst environmental disaster in British Columbia's history. Yesterday morning, 10 million cubic meters of wastewater containing dangerous chemicals poured into local waterways when the earthen dam surrounding a tailings pond collapsed. I was woken up with a phone call at 6 o'clock in the morning that uh, there had been a breach of the dam. I went outside and you could hear it roaring in the background. It was like being at Niagara Falls. And that uh, flow lasted for uh, three to four days. Um, and it took him a week to actually stop the flow altogether. Uh, the Mount Polly mine disaster in, on August 4th, 2014, sent shockwaves across the country and I would say around the world. It was the largest environmental mining disaster in Canadian history and uh, almost four years later, we still haven't seen justice for the people who were harmed by the disaster. The impact of this breach has created significant harms for indigenous peoples living in Sequatmuk territory and downstream, and for other people who rely on Quinell Lake and its waterways for food, for drinking water, for cultural and spiritual practices. The cleanup effort has been largely subsidized by the Canadian public, by British Columbia taxpayers, 30 cents on every dollar spent on cleanup by the company we've subsidized. So by telling us that the polluter pays not to worry, everything will be taken care of, uh, there will be no water discharges, don't worry, we got your back, we're experts, we know what we're doing, that hasn't been our story, and we don't want that to be your story. The unfortunate reality, so we've heard about uh, the, the horrors of the polymet, uh, of the Mount Poly disaster, 
Um, and it's not alone. Um, the UN Environmental Program documented seven major disasters in the last 10 years. Um, and the question for Minnesota is, uh, does Minnesota want to be next? We are incredibly thankful for the folks from Amnesty, from the people from British Columbia who have come today to testify and tell the people who live downstream what is at stake if we get this decision wrong. We need to be listening to experts who are warning us that this tailings basin design is risky and unsafe. One expert specifically points out that two of the factors that led to the disaster in Mount Polly are also incorporated in the dam design for PolyMet. This decision will broadcast our priorities and is irreversible. Today I'm having a conversation with JT Haynes, who is MCEA's Northern Minnesota advocate based in Duluth. JT is best known for his work on the PolyMet sulfide mine proposal and leading opposition to it in Duluth, located downstream of where the mine has been proposed. But what you might not know about JT is that he's got a lot of other things going on too. He is a filmmaker, a lawyer who worked for a big firm in downtown Minneapolis, and a lot of the experiences that he had before coming to MCEA have really informed his work with MCEA in Duluth today. Now, the title of today's podcast is all about PolyMet, but that's a little bit misleading and a little bit grandiose. Uh, it might take days for us to actually fully tell the full story of what's happening with PolyMet, and we don't want to use this time to rehash a lot of issues that you might have heard about before. What we hope to do in this podcast is to give you a different side of the PolyMet debate. Um, mining proponents often seek to portray opposition to PolyMet as nimbyism, um, not in my backyardism, and also portray opposition to unsafe sulfide mine proposals as embracing pollution and human rights abuses in other parts of the globe. But there is a global movement against mining company abuses, and JT has been part of it for a long time. And so we reached JT in Duluth to talk a little bit about how he came to this work and how MCEA's work on the polymet mine is part of this global struggle against unsafe mining practices. So JT, thanks so much for making time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great. Um, so at the top of the podcast, we heard from a number of Canadian human rights advocates and residents near the Mount Polly mine where there was a disaster in 2014. How did advocates from Canada end up in Duluth in 2018? Well, at the time in Duluth, we were having a little trouble breaking through with the idea that uh, folks in downstream communities should have a real stake in the conversations about some of these mining proposals. There were a lot of presentations of the polymet debate, for example, as one between the Iron Range and the Twin Cities, or between jobs and the environment, and in some cases, recreation. And we thought, well, wait a minute, we live here, uh, we drink this water, and our local economy really relies on this clean water. So we, we wanted to bring more attention to those voices. And as it happens, I, I know an organizer with Amnesty International Canada, her name's Tara Skur. She is based in British Columbia on Vancouver Island. And she was very involved with um, a lot of the storytelling that took place after the Mount Polly disaster. She's really connected with the communities that were uh, impacted by the Mount Polly disaster and, and knows those folks. So having heard about what happened in, in British Columbia, you know, obviously we we're very concerned about it, but we also saw a lot of similarities with what we were dealing with here in Duluth. So I reached out to Tara to just kind of ask her what's been going on in British Columbia and, you know, is this something, is this something you might be interested in, in talking about here in Duluth as well? Yeah. And so how did you first come to know Tara? 
I was part of a, a film crew that produced a documentary called Gold Fever. Um, it's centered on a, a Canadian gold mining op operation in Guatemala. And we toured the world with that film. A lot of similar issues in terms of self open pit sulfide mining, et cetera, impacts on the communities. And when we presented the film in Vancouver, I reached out to Tara because she's got a lot of connections with the folks in Guatemala too. I hadn't met her at the time. Um, and we co-presented the film in Vancouver along with a representative from the company. So there's a, a question and answer after the film. Tara presented her perspectives as an amnesty staffer and I was there as a filmmaker and we had a vice president from Gold Corp. Really, really interesting conversation uh, covered by the Vancouver Sun at the time. So I had been keeping in touch with Tara after that for years, keeping in touch with folks that we know in common in the human rights community uh, around North America. JT, can you describe for the audience a little bit more about what Gold Fever was about and what the situation was that you were covering in the documentary? Yeah, so Gold Fever is about a, a Canadian gold mining operation in the highlands of Guatemala in a community called San Miguel Ixtoacan. It's a mine called the Marlin Mine that started operations in about 2005. Um, gold Corp is headquartered in Canada. And the Marlin Mine is owned by a local a junior subsidiary in Guatemala. The junior subsidiary and the Canadian headquarters of Gold Corp. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to get, paint this picture for folks that are listening. Canada is kind of the headquarters of the global mining industry. Why are there so many Canadian mining companies? Yeah, so about half of global capital global mining capital is raised on Canadian stock exchanges. This is another thing that Tara Skir talks quite a bit about with Amnesty. Um, they've got operations in over 100 countries. Um, and in this instance in Guatemala, what we learned is there are some liability reasons why it's useful to have the parent company be a transnational corporation headquartered in another country, in this case in Canada, as is often the case. It's much, much harder to hold a parent company that's headquartered in another country responsible for anything that might go wrong in the, the country where the operation exists. Um, and that, that's actually made even more the case by international trade agreements like NAFTA and CAFTA, um, which make it even harder for host countries to, to hold those parent companies accountable. So you see a lot of global um, capital being raised in the, in the global north, and you see a lot of the, those companies headquartered there as well. What were the liability issues at the Marlin mine? And what was the community that was surrounding the Marlin mine concerned about when it came to pollution, human rights abuses, et cetera, at the Marlin mine in Guatemala? So a lot of the concerns in San Miguel centered around water. Um, so there's a, a massive tailings basin that you can see in the film. It's actually got a, a weird turquoise, turquoise color. It almost looks like it glows. <laughs> um, and, you know, the, the water protectors and advocates in the community were convinced that the, the mine is leaking pollution, essentially. I mean, some of the local campesinos and farmers would point to dead cows that had drank some water that came down a stream. And then there'd be a big debate between the mining companies. Um, veterinarian and an independent veterinarian as to whether like it was water from the mine that actually caused this cow to die. And of course, it's very hard to prove what the cause of that was. But the local farmers would be saying, we, you know, we've never even seen this before. Diodora, one of the farmers we met, she showed us some taps that were dry that aren't normally dry. I mean, because it's billions of gallons of water that the, the mining company is using at a very, very low cost, of course. 
Um, there's a lot of land use issues. You know, a lot of this this land is held in kind of community trust by um, indigenous communities that have been there for millennia. Um, Guatemala is actually one of the few countries in the world that's that's a majority um, indigenous. There's I think 20 or 20 or more dialects of of Mayan um, languages spoke in Guatemala. In in this community, it's Mayan mom. And so, you know, land is held in trust and then the mining company comes in and is able to kind of like peel one landowner off here and one person off there and like kind of create a record of, of new ownership of the land. And, and the people we talked to felt like they had been lied to and tricked. And, you know, there, there's not a lot of history and understanding of what, you know, kind of what you and I might look at as traditional real estate transactions with deeds and real estate agents and attorneys, et cetera. That's just not how it's been done in these communities. So it's it's yet another way where the mining company is able to kind of take advantage of, of the situation on the ground um, towards their, their ultimate goal, of course, which is profit. And it sounds like, you know, in your description of it, that there's a lot of parallels between the issues that are raising you know, themselves here in Minnesota when it comes to the polymet mine or the twin metals mine proposal or other copper nickel mine proposals. Uh, and what you were experiencing in Guatemala. I'm wondering if you could kind of walk people through what you think those parallels might be. Yeah, well, one thing, I, one thing I've found interesting, you know, observing the conversation here in Minnesota is, is some of the ways that the company approaches the community. I mean, we see some of the same divisions, of course, which is very painful for folks. And I, I don't want to kind of understate that where... You know, it, it's been a difficult conversation in northern Minnesota. There's real interest in jobs and development. Um, you know, there, there's obviously a long history of of iron mining and taconite mining in northern Minnesota. Um, so I, I would say that sort of lays a groundwork for helping the company sow some of these divisions that make the political and regulatory outlook even more challenging. Um, but just some some small examples of some of the things I've observed in northern Minnesota is just the the way financial contributions and advertisements are handled. You know, you see a billboard here about how you know Polymet executives and employees. You know, we live here and we donate here, and then you see a five hundred dollar contribution to the local Blue Line Club. You know, the local hockey club, or a five hundred dollar donation to the local library, or in you know most prominently in Minnesota, like tens of thousands of dollars spent on advertising for our local um, state high school hockey tournament, which is, of course, a very proud institution in Minnesota. I see that as a similar strategy to some of the things that have have been used in Guatemala. For example, there is a clinic in the community of San Miguel Ixtihuacan. And when we asked local community members about the clinic, they said, oh, that's just a building. You know, they came here and they promised that they were going to build a, a, a clinic and it's just an empty building. You know, nothing was actually done with it. Um, so I think it just kind of goes to show like we, I think we need to be careful as communities about how we receive what ultimately is peanuts in the grand scheme of what, you know, the resources that are taken out of our land. When a few, few contributions are tossed around here and there to kind of paint this picture of like a really good corporate citizen. So I, I, I do see parallels between how the global mining industry acts in other countries and how they've, they've kind of handled things in Minnesota, too. I mean, obviously, the, the Fond du Lac band of Lake Superior Chippewa can speak for themselves when, they, when it comes to their relationship with Polymet. But it also struck me that there is a parallel there in terms of 
the ways in which mining companies relate to and treat indigenous people that might have concerns about the proposals to build a mine on either on territory or in areas where it have been ceded by treaty, and in this case in Minnesota, where they have the right to hunt and fish. Um, do you see similar parallels that I do on this I, one? I do. That's a really good point. One of the big issues of conversation in Guatemala is I, I believe the country was or is a signatory to the International Labor Organization Convention 169, which requires consultation with indigenous communities. And there's a lot of discussion about what that means and has consultation actually been achieved with the local communities in Guatemala or has the conversation been short-circuited um, in, in a way that favors the project. Uh, a lot of the communities in Guatemala actually on their own sort of initiative had had community meetings called consultas where they invited everyone from the town to come talk about the, the proposal and then vote on it. Um, and overwhelmingly, like we're talking 99% typically, when, when these consultas were held, the, the, there was opposition to the mine. Now, of course, are the, the folks who are benefiting directly from the mine at those meetings, like the, maybe it's the construction company, the, the, the cement contractor, or you know, the, the handful of folks who are actually employed by the mine, are they at those consultas? Um, I think generally probably not, but the, but the rest, the remainder of the community was basically not in favor of the proposals, at, at least what we observed. Um, I think there is a similar question in Minnesota. You know, under our treaty obligations with the, with the bands that are affected directly for reservation resources or directly through um, retained treaty rights on ceded territories, you know, what, what is our obligation as Minnesota, as the state of Minnesota, to be consulting with the Fond du Lac Band and others have we sought consent of the Fond du Lac band? I don't, I don't think we have. I don't think, I don't think anyone is suggesting we have sought consent and whether that's legally required under this idea of consultation, I think there'd be some debate about that, but, but just as a community member and a neighbor of, of, uh, the members who live at, at Fond du Lac, I, I personally think a lot more weight should be given to whether the band to whom we owe these treaty obligations, has been adequately consulted on these proposals. And what, what I've heard from band members um, and staff with the natural resources folks at Fond du Lac is that, is that you know, that, that consultation has been very thin. So 2013, the, the Goldfield movie comes out. By the way, you can still watch it on Amazon Prime. It's right there for free if you've got Amazon Prime. Um, so well worth the watch. But about a year after the film came out, um, was when the news at Mount Polly broke. I remember this really vividly in August 2014. I woke up one morning to video of this massive tailings dam break and a huge flood of toxic tailings downstream into Quinell Lake uh, at the headwaters of the Fraser River. You saw this video too. I mean, what did you think at the time having just completed this documentary uh, about an, a similar kind of mine proposal in Guatemala? It, it kind of reinforced what I had already been feeling, which is that we can't look at these operations in a vacuum. I feel that we are all part of an interconnected story. And, you know, we like to think and, and we're told at every opportunity that, you know, we are, we have the best regulations and the best practices and we're the you know best able to handle uh, mining operations like this. Um, you know, we're told that we're exempt from these risks. And I have never believed that. 
and I don't think we should be casual in our belief of those claims. Um, but certainly when Mount Polly happened and, you know, British Columbia, beautiful area um, near Qu Quinnell Lake, in the, the country that's supposed to be the best at mining, <laughs> with the most mining companies. And here is this catastrophic failure of this dam, polluting um, this beautiful lake, an important salmon run, impacting treaty rights for indigenous First Nations communities, with, by the way, some engineers in common with some of the folks who've designed the Polymet uh, proposal. So it, it, it reinforced for me the idea that we are, we are not exempt from these risks. And you know, it's, it's really, really a bad idea to just operate on hope and belief here. Well, I think that's a really important point. I just want to underscore it, which is that, you know, Minnesotans have this kind of, I don't know, Lake Wobegon approach to believing that we're above average in everything. And therefore, things that are really risky elsewhere aren't quite as risky here. But what seems to be happening here is this kind of repetition of similar issues across the globe, capital being located in Canada, uh, and then everyone's saying it's, it couldn't possibly happen here, and then it does. And so I wanted to kind of take a step forward to this Mount Polly delegation. So you mentioned Tara Skur, and you have other folks that came to Duluth in 2018, and we heard some of their voices at the top of this segment. I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about how this whole visit came together and how we ended up with folks from the Mount Polly area in Duluth in 2018 talking to community members there. Yeah, so I, I reached out to Tara and I described some of the situations that we were experiencing in Minnesota, northern Minnesota, and specifically in downstream communities like Duluth. And I would include in that Cloquet and Esco and Carlton, communities up the north shore of Minnesota, and then, of course, the Fond du Lac Band and Reservation as well. Um, and I was just describing kind of the nature of the conversation, how it was pitting you know, kind of Iron Range communities against Twin Cities communities and sort of skipping over this, you know, whole very important narrative of like the geographic center of this, which is the communities that would actually be impacted if there were a, a similar dam failure at Polymet. Um, that, that water would flow south um, through the St. Louis River watershed system to into the Lake Superior Basin. So I was describing this for, for Tara, and of course, it's not hard for her to see the parallels to what happened at Mount Polly as well. I mean, there's an incredible number of parallels. And the more we talked about it, the more interested she was in the situation. And she takes a very global, international view of this industry as well. And she sees all these things as, as connected too. Um, so she was interested in, and willing to come to Duluth. And of course, from our perspective in Duluth, you know, we're, we're trying to get more attention paid to this issue and to, and to local downstream voices. And I'm not aware of another time that Amnesty International sent an official delegation to observe the conversation in, a, in Duluth. So, you know, we thought this was a really good opportunity to both exchange knowledge and experiences with this delegation, but also to attract some media attention and, and some attention from local elected officials. So Tara invited a, a community member from Cornell Lake and then also an Amnesty USA uh, member from the Twin Cities. And they, they came to Duluth in February of 2018. This, so you've got, I believe his name is Doug Watt, was the guy who lived on Cornell Lake and he was a former employee of the Mount Polly mine. Mm -hmm. Tara from Amnesty International, uh, Jenny Green, I believe we also heard from at the top of the this segment, uh, who's actually based out of the University of Minnesota Law School uh, in the Twin Cities. Um, 
when they came to Duluth, what was the message they delivered? And, and who did they talk to while they were in Duluth? Well, first of all, we thought it was important for our first trip to be to the Fond du Lac band to the reservation. Um, so that was the first meeting we took the very first morning they were here. Um, and we met with the tribal council to share information about what happened at Mount Polly and also to hear about uh, the Fond du Lac band's experience um, going through the process with the PolyMet proposal. Um, we thought it was important to do that for a number of reasons, um, including, you know, if we were going to be speaking with elected officials in Duluth, we thought it was important that those conversations were also informed by the sovereign nation to our to our immediate west. So very good conversation at Fond du Lac. And then we had a number of conversations with local elected officials in Duluth and actually, lo I should say state and local because it was all levels. It was city councilors county commissioners, the, the local state legislators, um, and the mayor. So we had very productive conversations where the delegation presented to all those folks and basically just kind of delivered the message that like, hey, you know, we've, we've kind of heard a lot of these promises before. They, they sound familiar. So, you know, here's a little bit of our experience. And just one example of their experience, that the Mount Polly operation was supposed to be, it was permitted as a zero discharge operation. It was never supposed to have any discharge at all. And I think the horribly ironic thing about the, the catastrophe, other than the immediate impacts, which are very obvious, is you know, then it sent the regulators scrambling. You know, we have a, a mining operation that's you know, currently in operation, and we, it's now discharging pollutants. So the regulators had to make a decision about the permits, and they ended up issuing new permits that allowed for discharge. So, um, I, I always just, I found that to be like just the height of irony that by virtue of having this catastrophe, they ended up with a permit that was more lax than the permit that was initially granted. So I hope that that was the, a message that was received pretty clearly by our local elected officials. I mean, the obvious subtext there is once these, once these mines are in operation, it's actually harder to institute controls and regulate them. Um, cause there's real people with real jobs and there's already real environmental impacts. So at that point, there's the calculation is very different. Mm -hmm. And I think one piece of good news in Minnesota is, um, our state Minnesota court of appeals has, has picked up on that and they've, they've understood that dynamic. So not to switch back over to parliament here, but you know, in, in reviewing the air permit in January of this year, they, they made it very clear that they understood that once the train's out of the station, it's a very different, very different situation. So I, right. I'm, I'm heartened to know that the Court of Appeals is understanding some of those challenges. And I hope the governor is understanding that, too. Well, and I, and I you know, I, I was there as well. And I think one of the things that was most affecting for me was to hear this message that says that, I mean, here's this tragedy that has, you know, affected hundreds of not thousands of people um, could do has done permanent damage to an ecosystem that's really important. And nobody had been held accountable for it. There were no criminal charges. There was, uh, the, the civil penalties were light at best. Meanwhile, as they were trying to figure out how to clean it up, they actually permitted Imperial Metals, the company that owned it, to open another mine. And part of their rationale was that they needed the money to pay for the cleanup at Mount Polly. You know, but I think one of the things that was really interesting from my perspective was hearing from folks who were told that there would be accountability um, for this disaster and how their experience in the years following it was that there was none. Right. And imagine, imagine living in that watershed and not knowing whether the, the water you're drinking is polluted. 
I mean, and that's just one of the, the really scary things about this to me. I mean, we've already got elevated mercury levels in our water in the St. Louis River watershed. I mean, this is stuff you can't see or smell. All of a sudden at Quinell Lake, I mean, some of this was very visible. There's like heavy amounts of sediment and they were having to put expensive pumps and filters at their, their homes. Um, but there's just also that just ever present question, uh, is the water I'm drinking safe? Um, and living with that kind of over your head in perpetuity, to me, that's a really scary idea. So, you know, and it doesn't take, it doesn't take a, a complete damn failure for that to be a reality. It just takes leakage and spillage, which is, you know, almost always the case with, with these types of operations. So what was the reception in Duluth? You, t- you said you talked to state representatives, you talked to city councilors, you talked to the Fond du Lac uh, Reservation Business Com- Committee. Um, what was the what was the feedback that you got from this visit? It was really, really positive. Um, I was I was impressed and and heartened by the number of elected officials that sat down for these visits and they had a lot of good questions. Um, There's questions raised about the health impact assessment, which hasn't taken place in Minnesota. Questions raised about an emergency response plan if there were a dam failure. You know, is there emergency re- is the response plan more than bottled water like we had in the seventies with the reserve case? You know, what, is there a real reserve, uh, response plan in in place and how come we haven't heard about it? You know, should, should the mayor be talking about that? What's, what's the status with that? So a lot of good questions came out of it. We had a packed house, the fullest I've ever seen Duluth city council when this delegation came to testify at Duluth city council. You know, we've got a really neat thing here in Duluth where, um, citizens and their guests can testify for three minutes at the start of any um, public city council meeting. So Doug and Tara and Jenny all spoke, spoke incredibly powerfully, and you know a, a packed house and all the media and the city councilors heard that testimony. I thought that was really important. And we had a, a uh, an event at the folk school. 125 people showed up. I think there was like 12 or 15 sponsoring organizations. It was a, it was a pretty incredible thing, and I think it really did help kind of break through this idea that you know we need to be listening to the downstream communities. They've got a real stake here, and that those that stake needs to be elevated. Yeah, and then parallel to that was the fact that there was the public hearing on the permit to mine for Polymed in Duluth just in the and I think a week before this visit, and so it was interesting to watch how you've got this you know state led process that brought this, you know, fairly contentious public hearing to Duluth and then to have it followed up by this delegation was a really interesting moment. The timing of all that was pretty incredible. And I think there are a few folks who were ready for a day off after after those several weeks because that, that public hearing in Duluth with all the orange and blue hankies waving, that was, I think it was within six days of the amnesty trip to Duluth. So quite the, quite the period there. So in 2019, JT, you came to work for MCEA. So all this work that you were doing up to this point has been either as a filmmaker or an, a local activist in Duluth for, for Duluth for Clean Water. But when you came to MCEA, one of the first things you did was take a trip to Toronto. What was that trip for? So Polymed has their annual shareholder meeting in Canada every year. It rotates between Toronto and Vancouver. And we wanted to bring some attention to the local stake in this, in this proposal. So we brought a group of folks to Toronto for that meeting. So describe the sound clips we're about to hear. So we're at the Polymet shareholders meeting here, which is in a hotel in downtown Toronto. And I had with me a handheld mic and audio recorder and just took some interviews with folks on the street. No consent. Stop Polymet. No consent. Stop Polymet. 
So we are here in uh, Toronto, Ontario at the Polymed Annual Shareholders Meeting. Um, we're out front of the Hilton Hotel and there are some folks uh, demonstrating outside the hotel with the message, no consent, stop Polymed. No consent, stop Polymed. No consent, stop Polymed. Okay, we're, on the, we're on the legal legal side of the line here. Are we going to start moving? Okay, we're on the illegal side, you're right. That's a good point. <laughs> I forgot about that. So we will get, because I talked to the cop, thing. Yeah? Yeah, and he said if, if we go in, we'll get arrested. Inside the building? Yeah. Well, that's unfortunate. I was just in there. I know. Well, and then I was distracting him while someone else went in, so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so can you say your name and spell it? Okay. My name is Tara Skur, T-A-R-A-S-C-U-R-R. And uh, who are you with? What are you, where are you from? What are you doing here? Uh, okay, I am the Business and Human Rights Campaigner with Amnesty International Canada. I have come to Toronto today from Vancouver to uh, be a part of this uh, solidarity with folk, the delegation from Minnesota. And what message are you carrying with you? So our message is that uh, Canada and Canadian companies have an obligation and a responsibility to ensure that human rights and the environment are protected where Canadian companies operate. And uh, we, our understanding is that the Polymet Project, which is a, a Canadian-based company, Polymet uh, Corporation is not uh, meeting its human rights responsibilities in terms of consultation, consent, um, uh, responding to community concerns about risks and um, the government of Canada has an obligation to ensure that Canadian companies operating outside of Canada um, respect the human rights that Canada has an obligation to uphold and so we're very concerned that this project could go ahead um, without um, managing the human rights and environmental risks and against the consent of the affected and downstream communities. I'm organized with the Mining and Justice Solidarity Network. I was born and raised in Toronto, which is also home to many of the world's mining companies. Uh, I feel a responsibility as a Canadian and as someone born and raised in Toronto who benefits from a lot of Canadian mining activities to also hold them accountable uh, to listen when communities say no or when communities put conditions on mining companies. And so I want to continue to support y'all in your fight. I am a resident of Duluth, Minnesota, and I am here because I heard that Polymet is telling its shareholders that it has the consent of downstream communities, and as a member of one of those downstream communities, I wanted to let them know they don't have that consent. Great. And so why is this important to you personally? This is important to me because this is my drinking water into the future. This is also going to affect my neighbors, including the sovereign nation of Fond du Lac. I'm on the Duluth City Council. I represent the second district on the Duluth City Council, and we're here in Toronto um, in front of the Hilton, uh, where the annual shareholders meeting for Polymet will be happening in uh, less than a half an hour. I'm here because there's enormous concern in the city of Duluth, and there's enormous concern among the people I represent about the uh, potential impact of the Polymet project on uh, Duluth's water, both on Lake Superior and on the St. Louis River. And... Uh, the concerns in the community, the concerns that have been expressed by local elected officials such as myself, have not been heeded by our state regulators and state policymakers in Minnesota. It's been really remarkable to see the uh, amount of political pressure that's been brought to bear on local officials in uh, northern Minnesota by uh, the allies of Polymet and Glencore 
uh, pressure for us to uh, just keep our mouths shut about the serious concerns we have uh, with the threat to our, uh, our water. So I just found out that I am not going to be allowed into the shareholders meeting. My name and photo are on a list of people who should never be allowed. And I don't know what I did to get on that list, but I am exceedingly proud because it must be because I'm standing up for water and for people over corporate profits. So why go to Toronto for the shareholders meeting? You said that you wanted to raise awareness of what the impact was downstream, but it seems odd that there would be, you know, A, this meeting in Toronto and B, that a bunch of Minnesotans would go out to it. What? Why did you go out there and, and what made it possible to actually uh, get this done? So it's interesting reading the corporate disclosures from a company like Polymet. Um, they have to describe all the risk factors for their investors um, who are making decisions about whether to invest their own funds in, in, the, in the, the company. And one of the, one of the disclosures in the Polymet risk factors is, you know, they suggest a level of local support for the proposal. I think, you know, political unrest and local opposition, that, that is uh, a factor for these companies operating worldwide, and it's a factor that investors use to make their decisions. So they suggested a, a level of support in northern Minnesota for this proposal. So this and is called social license, I believe, in the way that they talk about it, right? That's right. Social license. Exactly. That's the term. And you can imagine that folks downstream... Um, don't feel represented in that disclosure. <laughs> we do. We do not feel that we've been we've been asked whether we agree that there's local support for the proposal. So, to, to us, this is yet another reason why the voices downstream that would be directly impacted by this by this mine um, need to have their voices heard. So we want the shareholders in Canada to know about that. We want the Canadian media to know about that. We want to be visiting with our, our partners and allies in Canada who are working on similar issues. And by the way, we want to get audio clips from all this so folks in Minnesota can hear it too. So that, sure. that was the idea. Yeah. So, um, but you just mentioned something that I think is interesting, which is that a lot of folks may not know this, but there's you're not the only people protesting at a mining company shareholder meeting in Toronto in the summer of 2019. Tell folks a little bit more about like the role that Toronto plays and also how there are, there is this kind of network of folks that are working on mining injustice in Toronto and helping groups like Blue for Clean Water and MCEA get, get organized and take actions at the shareholder meeting. Well, you said it. I mean, so there is a group in Canada called the Mining Injustice Solidarity Network, and they work closely with Mining Watch Canada and Amnesty International Canada and other groups who are really observing the human rights and environmental and social records of these companies. So um, as we stated earlier in, the, in this episode, there, there's a lot of capital in, in the Canadian Stock Exchange, Toronto Stock Exchange. So this is a very familiar scene a mining company having an annual shareholder meeting in Toronto. So MISSIN, the Mining and Justice Solidarity Network, is very kind of familiar with this process, and they are, you know, interested in helping community groups and, and other folks around the world, you know, make sure their voices are heard too. So it, it, was really, it was really nice to be able to connect with some folks in Toronto who, you know, are, they're familiar with these issues, and their, their experience is, is super helpful and and kind of helped us you know, elevate our voices too. Yeah. So it, it wasn't just you went out there to protest. You also had a bunch of conversations with folks as well. Um, who are some of the folks you talked to and what did you learn? Yeah, I would say the demonstration outside the shareholder meeting was the, 
I don't want to say a small part of it, but it may be a minority part of the effort. Um, we had a lot of conversations with Canadian media. Um, it had some great coverage. And we had good coverage back home in Minnesota, too, from the trip. But we also met with a lot of groups. In addition to um, a number of exchanges with Amnesty International and, and Missin, we also met with, with folks in the area who have you know, maybe perhaps a little bit of a different stake. And one group I'd like to point out in particular is the United Steelworkers. Um, we met with the district representatives from that, the Ontario area for, for the United Steelworkers. And they, of course, have their own complicated relationship with Glencore. You know, the steelworkers of Minnesota uh, have had a, a particular approach to polymet that I, that could be a whole other episode. It's a complicated thing. But, you know, there's interest in the jobs, but also interest in, in corporate accountability, et cetera. So I think those are important conversations to keep having. Uh, but in, in Canada at the time, steelworkers are actually having major issues with a Glencore oper a smelting operation in Ontario. So, you know, we met, we sat down with the the leadership from the the local steelworker district in Toronto and heard about the the issues with Glencore and we shared some of our concerns about the polymet um, issue in Minnesota and you know obviously with a meeting like that it's relationship building and information exchanging and the the idea is to start a dialogue and continue a dialogue so it's not like you know we're not coming to striking any agreements in meetings like that or making any big decisions it's it's about like you know how what are our common interests here and should we be talking more frankly mm -hmm. and and you mentioned glencore and just weeks after this shareholder meeting there was a big change in the way that polymet talked about their ownership uh with glencore resulting in a 76% ownership stake in polymet basically fun functionally controlling it which had probably been true for years but at least this probably made it clear for everybody that Glencore was the controlling owner of Polymet. Tell people a little bit more about Glencore. You mentioned something about the steelworkers having a dispute with them and about a smelter in Canada, but there's a lot more to this story too. Yeah, Glencore is a massive resources conglomerate based in Switzerland. It's a $30 billion corporation. It actually used to be about a $50 billion corporation, but I think the stock price has taken quite the hit in the last couple of years. Uh, but they have operations, they have 150 operations worldwide. Um, and they are now officially the majority owner of Polymet. As you said, they're 76% uh, ownership. Um, something that's worth noting here is that I think, I think it's okay to just mention there's been a handful of folks in Minnesota who've been, who've been saying this for years, that there has been effective control of Polymet by Glencore you know, for, for a long time. Um, and in fact, none of this is a surprise and probably is actually all on purpose. <laughs> so Glen Glencore has had a you know, significant influence on the board, but they've had their influence and control through debt arrangements. They have convertible debt um, and loans that with, with Polymet. And they've, they've used that, those debt arrangements to, when they've converted that, those debt arrangements and had these new stock offerings, they've basically taken over official control of the company as well, which, by the way, has a, a diluting effect on the mom and pop shareholders that, you know, we might be neighbors with in northern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have, I definitely, you know, I've sat at hockey games locally here, and I, I've heard grandparents talk about how they have money invested in Polymet and how, like, they're, they have hopes about their, their grandson's future and, and based on this investment. And I, and I just, I, 
I feel badly about that. I feel badly about the idea that this has kind of been Glencore's plan all along and that these these mom and pop investors were going to be faced with a decision about whether to throw more money at an investment that um, was that is a, probably a pretty shaky investment and in order to maintain the stake that they had previously owned. I think that's a really tough decision and I wish... I wish there was more honesty and transparency about some of those corporate arrangements. Um, but anyway, that's that's a long-winded way of saying Glencore has a lot of corporate control over Polymet, and now they are officially uh, the majority owner of Polymet. And, and of course, you know, Polymet is a, a company that didn't exist before. It has one mine, and it's only that one mining operation. But Glencore, as you say, is this massive multinational global commodities uh, enterprise What's their record elsewhere? I mean, what what should Minnesotans expect from Glencore if they become the the operator of a copper nickel mine in northern Minnesota? Well, I hope it's not too surprising for folks to hear that a that a gigantic resource extraction company with operations all over the planet has a has a choppy record. Hopefully, that's hopefully we know enough at this point to know that that's that shouldn't be too surprising. Um, but that being said, just a couple of specifics on Glencore. Their their record is bad. They have a they have a, a record of labor violations and just being anti-union, um, but also specifically criminal allegations. Uh, Glencore is under investigation in the United States and in the UK and in Brazil for allegations of corruption and bribery in their operations in South America and in Africa, in Venezuela, Nigeria, and, and the Congo. Um, so this is the type of company that we are dealing with here. And I, I, I certainly think we should have eyes wide open about what that means for Minnesota. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, it's really important to think about this in the context of the way Minnesotans have shaped this conversation about mining is so focused on just here, right? And thinking about, you know, our experience in the last 120 years with the iron and taconite mining industry, for example. Um, And one of the refrains you hear from folks um, who are pushing for projects like Polymet or proposals like Polymet is that, if you don't open it here, you're basically turning a blind eye to the bad practices elsewhere in the globe. Um, but you've actually been over over to these you know, locations like in Guatemala near the Marlin mine. And I'm wondering, like, what would the people who live in the shadow of the Marlin mine in Guatemala say in response to that? I mean, is, is it really that opening mines in the U.S. is the best hope that they have for getting justice and clean water for themselves in Guatemala? Well, first of all, just a, a quick fact that I think is notable. Um, Glencore and their operations around the world have actually idled more copper capacity in the past several years, quite a bit more than Polymet would actually produce. So right, right out of the gate, there's a problem with this idea that opening a, a new mine here somehow helps um, communities around the world who have existing operations um, and folks out of work with, with my, those minds idled. So I, I think that right away it's a really complex question. But in terms of the even bigger picture, you know, I think about Diodora and Gregoria and Crisanta in Guatemala. What, what they're looking for, and as I understand it listening to them, is they're looking for solidarity and they're looking for folks holding these companies accountable for the impacts they're having on communities, on pollution and, and clean air and clean water and the extraction of, of these resources. And I, I don't believe that they think the way to do that is to just allow a lack of accountability elsewhere. I think they, they 
would view this as, you know, please go home to your home country where you're even closer to where the global capital is that operates these mines and where perhaps, you know, kind of the structures of democracy um, and the rule of law, perhaps there's some more ability to hold these these companies accountable and you should do that. And things like clean air and clean water sh should have a value and that, that value needs to be included in this process. And by doing that where you live, you know, you will be helping us do that here. Well, and that may, and I think that's a really interesting point and one that is important to underscore, which is that if we can't hold mining companies accountable in the United States where we have, as folks point out, you know, a legal system that's robust and we have folks with enough resources and expertise uh, that they're not, you know, they, they can actually stand up to companies. And I worry about what does it look like elsewhere in, in the world where maybe the legal system isn't as robust. Maybe where folks don't have access to resources to be able to fight big corporations. Well, I was just going to say, this isn't really a podcast about geopolitics and we don't have seven hours to talk about this. But I, I do just want to point out that, you know, the, the realities in Guatemala in terms of democracy and the rule of law and impunity of corporate actors like that, we we have a role in that, too, as um, citizens of the global north and as citizens of the United States. Our, our country and our government and our corporations have been very involved in the, the country of Guatemala for decades. Um, we were involved in the, the, the coup in Guatemala in 1954. And we've been involved with uh, the dictatorships that have been in Guatemala since, which has resulted in a bloody civil war and the, and the genocide of a 250,000 indigenous people, which has had the effect of making it easier for international mining companies to operate in Guatemala because of the, the weakening of the rule of law and the weakening of the c communities to democratically weigh in on whether these projects happen where they live. So I, I do think... It is important to put this not just in a community to community context, but a broader context, but also like a temporal context where, you know, these these relationships have been being developed for a long time. That leads me to kind of the last question, which is really like, what's our path forward? I mean, knowing that mining is not a isolated industry, but rather it's part of this global interconnected network of needs and resources and consumption and governance. What's the path forward? How can we be honest about the impact that our own consumption of metals here in the global north, here in the United States have, but use that to motivate the structural changes that we need in order to ensure justice for people that might be affected by these mining operations? I think we need to resist the idea, the, the sort of temptation to view this as a project by project situation and see this as one big interrelated issue. I think that's how the mining industry views this. Um, I think they view all these operations as connected and you know whether one moves forward or one doesn't depends on a lot of factors that it, they're, they're all interrelated. And I, I also think this is a challenging conversation to have and I think it's challenging for environmental nonprofits too, but, but we, I think we do need to have this on the table. If a healthy environment requires that we use less metals or that we actually price the value of clean water and clean air into the process for approving and operating these projects, then that, that needs to be a part of the conversation. Um, we, we shouldn't just be looking to get the most metal at the cheapest cost, regardless of the impact on communities. And that goes for communities here, and it, it goes for communities all around the world. 
Um, and frankly, I think our governments need to do a better job of holding these corporate actors accountable. Um, I just don't think anyone really wants a smartphone, no matter what the impacts on ourselves and our neighbors. Um, I think we only want these things if it makes sense. So I, I just hope that we, we take the lessons learned around the world and, and we use those to build a, a broader view of solidarity where, I mean, not to use a cliche here, but to, to use a little bit more as like we really are all in this together. So one of the things that I've noticed as I've listened to this debate is that frequently the calls about, you know, you use metals, you have a cell phone, you drive a car is used as a way to silence people and to tell them that they don't have any right to participate in the conversation because they're hypocrites. Um, what would you say to somebody who says, hey, I, I recognize that my consumption of metals has an impact on these communities. What can I do about it? What should I do about it? Yeah, I think it is important to acknowledge that our own individual consumption is a part of this for sure. And I think by doing things like buying less cell phones, buying fewer cell phones, which, by the way, I think there's a lot of reasons to do that anyway, um, but I, but that is a way of reducing your one's own consumption of metals. And by the way, I say cell phones, but you can include laptops and, and batteries and a number of things in that. Um, I think that's a way to reduce one's own consumption, but also to stay connected to the bigger issue. Um, but I would also just encourage people to give real thought to the suggestion that if you use metal or if you participate in society in, in any way, really, you're therefore disqualified from the conversation about improving society. I just, I don't think that's who we are. And I, th I think we can do better than that. And frankly, um, I, I am disappointed when industry proponents trot out that talking point, you know, with a bag full of keys that, you know, here we all are, we live here, we use metals, therefore we're, we're just somehow disqualified from having a conversation about how to use fewer metals or how to produce them more responsibly or how to recycle them more responsibly or really having on the table like all the things we need to have on the table in order to ensure that we have clean water and, and clean air moving forward. I think that's a really great summary. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Voices Driving Change podcast by the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, this podcast is just one of 10 online events the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy is doing between September 15th and 24th to celebrate the Voices Driving Change for climate justice and clean water across Minnesota. We also released two other episodes of this podcast in the last week and a half, so be sure to subscribe to Voices Driving Change in your podcast player like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Go to VoicesDrivingChange.org to learn more about all of these podcasts, register for live events and webinars. That's VoicesDrivingChange.org. Be sure to register for our capstone event on September 24th at 7 p.m. called Legally Green in Your Living Room, where we'll have a wonderful live program. We really encourage you to register online and join us at 7 p.m. on Thursday, September 24th for the capstone event of Voices Driving Change. You can stay up to date with all of our work on the polymet sulfide mine proposal. Just go to our main website, mncenter.org, or follow us on social media. We're on all the big ones, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, all of these at MCEA1974. Lastly, you can fuel our work, make a donation. Go to mncenter.org donate. This has been Voices Driving Change, a project of the Minnesota Center for Environmental Advocacy. 
Thanks to Ian Levitt and Mike Compton of Studio Americana for editing and producing the podcast. And thanks also to Adam Reinhardt of MCEA for production and editing assistance. Thanks so much and have a great day. Hey.